off to a great start for my first time. Praise the Lord, everybody. All righty. Uh, it's great to be in the house of God. Uh, I was honored to be asked to speak tonight. Uh, I know Pastor guards his pulpit very, uh, very closely, as any pastor should. So to be entrusted uh, with it is a high honor. And uh, I also want to thank you guys for trusting me enough to want to listen to me because this is my first time doing this. You have your Bibles. Turn with me to James chapter 5 and verse 7. James chapter 5 and verse 7. Don't get too excited that I'm only reading one verse um, because I have several that we're going to go through tonight. Okay? I have done my best to rightly divide the word. Um, you know, I uh, struggle with it a little bit. Whether or not I was rightly dividing the word, if, if you don't believe me, uh, ask uh, Evelina. Apparently, the other night I was uh, struggling in my sleep, uh, going over this. I, I, she kept waking me up, saying, "You're okay," and I, I really don't know what was going on. But apparently, this was on my heart, uh, struggling the other night. So I've done my best to rightly divide the word. So I've either rightly divided the word, or I wrongly hacked it to pieces. So, uh, and we'll find out if Pastor decides to come up here and sit me down, which he has every authority to do, and I submit myself to that authority. James 5 and 7, you there say amen. Praise God. It says, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, because the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receives the early and latter rain. Lift your hands and pray with me. Lord, God, we love you, Lord. We thank you for this time, Lord, that the, the, the portion of this service, Lord, where we can get the teaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth, that it would... Uh, Find a lodging place, Lord, and not return to you, Lord, but that it will fulfill its purpose, God. We thank you for your word which is a lamp into our feet and a light unto our path, God. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for your anointing. I pray that you would anoint these unworthy lips of clay, God. Lord, help me to speak your word, Lord. Hallelujah. Let it go forth, Lord, and that, that, that it would fulfill its purpose, that you would receive the praise and the glory from it, God. Somebody would be blessed for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. You can be seated. If you ever find yourself in my house, whether it's to break bread or fellowship and playing games or for any, just any kind of hanging out, I would invite you to my office. Now, don't worry. It's not like being invited to pastor's office. I, I know what that's like. Uh, I, but I would invite you there to, uh, to show you my humble and unimpressive library. But it wouldn't be the library that I wanted to bring to your attention to. Okay, I would bring out, Sister Ruth, I would bring out this book right here. And I would bring it out very carefully. Okay, This is a book that my dad gave me several years ago. It's entitled, uh, Hitchcock's New and Complete Analysis of the Bible. It was published in 1875. Although I don't know it can be called new anymore since it's almost 150 years old. Okay, uh, I did some research on this book. And I discovered that if I wanted to sell it, I would be very happy with the price that it would bring. It wouldn't make me rich, but it, I would be happy with it. Uh, to me, you could say that this, uh, you know, th this, this book has value. Uh, you could say that to me that this book is costly. The next thing I will show you is this buffet. It may not look like much. It is quite old. I know at the time that my parents bought it, we were living in England. And at the time they bought it, it was 200 years old. So it's roughly 250 years old now. Um, 
They bought it in England, as I said, when they were stationed there. Uh, and my dad was stationed there in the military. Uh, if, if, and they brought it back from there. Of course, if, if, if memory serves me right, the moving company that the military used was called Mayflower Moving Company. So you could say that this thing came over on the Mayflower. <laughs> I, I've not had it appraised. I don't know what the value of it is, um, but I'm confident in, it's got some monetary value. But even if it doesn't, I like the fact that it comes from England. And I like the fact that my parents passed it down to me. And hopefully I like to pass it down to, to you know, the next generation of my, of my family, my, my kids. Unless it will make me rich and then I will sell it. <laughs> After we finished ooing and aahing over the book in the buffet, okay, I would point directly above the buffet where you would see this hanging on my wall. This is a Navajo rug. It was hand woven by my grandmother on a, on a loom that was handmade by my grandfather. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure of his, of his monetary worth. It's probably not anything to brag about if it's worth anything at all. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was woven in 1973, like I said, by my grandmother, and uh, now I have it. And it may not have a whole lot of uh, costly value, but like the buffet, okay, it, it, it brings, you have, it has, it's valuable to me. You could say that I have honor. Uh, it brings me honor. Something doesn't have to be costly uh, to have value. Okay. They could, you could say that you know, they can have, I can have honor, and I have honor in, in owning those things. These are just some of the things that I have that are either costly uh, or have honor. You could say that they are precious to me. We all have things that are precious to us. If I were to ask you the hypothetical question, your house is on fire, and you only have time to grab one thing before you get out, what would that thing be? Whatever came to your mind just now is something that is probably precious to you. That brings me to my, uh, le the title of my lesson tonight. It is Six Things That Are Precious to God. If I have asked you to be a volunteer tonight, would you please come and sit in this front row right here with Brother Kyle? Webster's, Dictionaries, uh, Webster's Dictionary defines precious as something of great value or costly. It also defines it as something uh, highly esteemed or cherished. Similarly, Strong's Concordance defines uh, precious as something as val valuable, costly, honored, esteemed, or beloved. Brother Brian, would you step up here, please? Brother Brian, the other day I asked you to come up and volunteer, correct? Correct. Beyond that... Have I explained anything that, uh, about this uh, message tonight? Nothing. Have I divulged anything to you about your role in volunteering tonight? You have not. Have I explained anything so you have no idea what's about to happen to you? No idea. In that case, I'm going to need you to put this on. My alarm is set to go off Monday through Friday at 4.20 every morning for work. Sometimes the Lord will wake me up before my alarm goes off. He has something for me. Okay? When that happens, when my eyes are wide awake at 4 o'clock in the morning and I can't get back to sleep, I'm like, Lord, can't this wait 20 more minutes? <laughs> and this happened to me last week. And as I laid there uh, waiting on the Lord, pondering what it is that he, that he wanted to tell me, this message started playing over and over in my head. And as I, was, as I was pondering this message, uh, it, was, it was clear to me 
that I could use in everyday situation in my life to explain faith. We can turn to 2 Peter 1 and 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter's writing this. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Brother Brian, can you see? Brother Brian, can you see? No. Okay, sorry about that. I forgot you can't see. Okay. <laughs> now, I want you to reach out your left hand and I will grab, and grab, feel for my elbow and grab my elbow. Okay? There you go, just like that. All right. Now, right now you are slightly behind me and to my right. Okay? Now, you, my elbow is going to be your guide. Okay, as I move my elbow forward, you also move forward. You might want to grip it just a little tighter. Okay? Now you are beside me. Okay? As I move my elbow back, there you go. You got the picture. You're going you're to guide back. Let's practice a little bit. Moving forward. Okay? Moving back. Okay. Now, I'm going to be God, and you're going to be Brother Brian, and you're going to be coming from the town of great faith. Yes, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. You are not going to be the one that Jesus was always talking about or talking to, Mr. Yee of little faith. All right. So you're going to hang on to my arm, okay, and you're doing good. You're going to hang on to my arm, and whatever you do, don't let go, just like you would not let go of the Holy Ghost. All right. Now, the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? Faith is the word that I think needs no entry in the Strong's Concordance. The reason why I don't think faith needs to have an entry in Strong's Concordance is because the Bible itself explains what faith is. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. Right? Right. Right now, Brother Brian is hoping that I don't run him into a wall. He's also hoping that I don't trip, you know, make him trip over anything that might be on the floor, right? So, but what's going to happen is, okay, um, we, we uh, don't hear, God doesn't usually talk to us in an audible voice, right? Uh, usually it's with uh, small nudges, okay? Uh, it's, a still small, it's a still small voice, little nudges here and there that leads us and guides us. And uh, teaches what teaches us which way to walk and which way to go. There you go. Teaches us which way to walk and which way to go, and guides us to where we should be. All we have to do is have faith, right? We walk by faith and not by sight, and we got to be sensitive to the move of God. We got to be sensitive to how God is leading us. Okay? Now, up to this point, have I said a word to Brother Brian? Well, how does he know that I'm leading him and guiding him? He's sensitive unto this. He's sensitive unto that. Unto the nudging of the Holy Ghost, right? He's sensitive unto. My bad. He just tripped over someone. <laughs> that was just my water. <laughs> he's sensitive unto the moving of the Holy Ghost. Okay, and it's that it's that nudging and leading and guiding of the Holy Ghost. Don't worry, brother Brian. I'm actually a professional. No I do this all the time. <laughs> Trust me, if I could trade places with you right now, I would. <laughs> All right. So, and it's the Holy Ghost that leads us and it guides us. It leads us where to go and protects us from harm and danger. Right? I am so far off my notes now, right now I can't remember what I was going to say. 
But we walk, we walk by faith and we walk by sight. Okay. All right. Let's put that down. We don't need that. So let's put up a, let's put up that first scripture again. Um, that like precious faith. Second Peter 1 and 1. Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have attained like precious faith with us, with us through the righteousness of Jesus. Like precious faith. Okay? Was Peter saying, dude, it's like precious faith, man? No, he wasn't saying that. Was he saying, it's like precious faith, but it's really not? No, he wasn't saying that either. Okay? What he was saying when he said like precious faith is uh, like meaning equal, not in amount but in sameness. Okay? Peter wrote this epistle. It's a general epistle. And uh, it means he, he wrote it to uh, some, the Gentiles and the Judeo-Christians, Jews who had converted over to, into Christianity. And uh, they had not, the, the, the audience that he was writing to had not ever seen Jesus. Okay? How do we know that hey, they had not ever seen Jesus? Because the, the same uh, audience that he wrote to in 2 Peter is the same audience that he wrote to in, uh, in 1 Peter, okay? And in 1 Peter 1 and 8, it says, whom, talking about Jesus, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though you have seen him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, okay? So what he was saying is, you, well, you have a like precious faith with us. You who have never seen Jesus, okay, have the same faith with us as as us who have walked with talked with lived with and learned from for three and a half years that same faith that we have is in you and it's also and it's precious okay it's a saving faith Amen. yeah it's a saving faith that brings salvation to the lost and uh, uh and peter puts great value on this faith okay because it is priceless and it is a saving faith that brings you to the one who calls you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. It is, it is this faith that when Peter says, it is this faith that when Peter says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, we can act on that. Amen? So it is this faith that when, when uh, God says, Brian, sit down. You can rest assured that he's going to sit down and the chair is going to be there. You can rest assured that God has you. Amen. Okay. Now, you might be saying, yeah, faith is precious to us. But how is it precious to God? Colossians 1, well, I'm glad you asked because Colossians 1.16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Revelations 4 and 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast uh, created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So if all things were created by him and for him, okay, and they were all created for his pleasure, then it stands to reason that he wants a creation that's going to please him. What does Hebrews 11 and 6 say about this? Hebrews 11 and 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For he, come, uh, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. Okay? It is faith that when God says, do this, do that, you can do that. And then it's the evidence of things hoped for. When he, when, if Brother Brian goes back and he watches a video of this, then he can see the evidence of what his faith has done for him and brought him through. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Brian. Thank you for everybody for, for volunteering. Did they do a good job? All right. Praise God. It takes faith to please God. And Peter said that faith is precious. Then God must also see God as precious. One, because it is needed to please him. And two, because it is what is needed to bring us into eternal life. But let's examine this a little further. In Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about when the coming of God, when the kingdom of God was going to come. Essentially, his reply was, when you least expect it. Then he put forth a couple of parables. At the end of answering this question, he asked a question of his own. And you find that in the last part of Luke chapter 18, verse 8. It says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When he comes, he is going to be looking for faith. When you go somewhere looking for something, that thing must have value to you. He is coming looking for faith, so faith must be precious to God. Not only is our faith precious to God, but the trial of our faith, the trial of our faith is precious to him. You can find that in 1 Peter 1 and 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We all understand how valuable gold can be. But in order for gold to be worth its greatest value, it has to go through a refining process. 100% pure gold is unattainable. A carrot is not a vegetable that Bugs Bunny ate. But a carrot is defined as, some, as a measurement of the purity of gold. 24 carats is considered pure gold. When it, is, when it is mined, it is often mixed with other materials, such as copper, uh, silver, or iron. The closest that a mined piece of gold can come to purity is about 85% when it's mixed with other materials. Gold is considered to be pure after re refining it when it reaches 99.9%, which equals the 24 carats. To purify gold, it has to go through an immense amount of heat. That's why the Bible says it is tried by fire. So I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of how gold was refined before, before modern technologies. It's broken up into, into pieces and put in a fireproof cauldron-like uh, container called a crucible. It is then heated to its melting point. When the gold is melted, all the impurities rise to the top. They then pull the crucible out of the fire and scrape off the impurities. But the gold is not yet pure. This process is repeated several times until they get the desired amount of carrots, the desired degree of carrots that they want. 24 carat gold may go through this process up to seven times. What makes gold valuable is that no matter how high the heat gets, okay, gold will still retain all of its properties. 
Peter paints a very vivid word picture here comparing the triumph of our faith to the purification of gold. We all have to face adversity, right? We all go through afflictions. But notice this. While we are the ones going through adversity, we are not what is being tried. It is our faith that is being tried. That the trying of your faith is what it says. Yes, we suffer, but it is our faith that is on trial. Matthew Henry states it like this. A trial is an experiment or search made upon man by some affliction to prove the value and strength of his faith. It's an experiment or a search made upon man by an affliction to prove the value or strength of his faith. Our faith is what is put to the fire. It is revealing to us our impurities, our imperfections uh, in our character, and what we, uh, what we lack in our walk with God, and how we can improve our relationship with him. If we respond to the trial in the right way, it gives us the opportunity to purge ourselves of those negative things that come to the, uh, and, and we come out better for it in the end, okay, with a more genuine faith. Gold cannot be 100% pure, but I believe our faith can. Okay. Like gold that retains its properties, okay, so too our faith will also retain its properties. Okay. No matter how high the heat gets in gold, it's going to still retain its properties. No matter the trial and the fire that we go through, our faith can still be uh, pure. And, and, and when, and, and it, but when it is impure, I'm sorry, but what is impure in us has, will have been purged. Okay. As Peter 1 and 6 says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Okay, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So we're not just going to go through this one time. As the gold, before it becomes 24, 20, or, uh, 24 carats, before it becomes 99.9 uh, .9 or pure gold, it has to go through it several times. Peter says in 1 and 6, we're going to go through manifold temptations. But because like gold must go through it several times, uh, our faith uh, uh, has to be tried many times in order to achieve what God is looking for. The end of 1 Peter 1 and 7 says that it might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Remember I said not all things have to be costly to be valuable. So one of the definitions is something that is highly esteemed or honored. Okay, that our faith may be, be, be found to have praise and glory and honor at the, uh, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Once again, when he comes, he will be looking to see if the trial of our faith will bring praise, glory, and honor to him. Making it precious to him. And when all heaven shall pass away with great noise, and the, element, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, as the Bible says, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up as the gold that perisheth. Okay? That's what Peter said. But our faith will remain and bring us, and, and, and bring us to bring us a soul to heaven. Okay? Our souls to heaven. The trial of our, of our faith, look at this. This is neat. The trial of our faith is so precious God, uh, that he even prayed, he even made a specific prayer about it. Luke 22, 31 through 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, talking about Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren, strengthen thy brethren. Who is Jesus talking to? Well, I already said he's talking, about, he's talking to Peter. Jesus was telling Peter that Satan was going to try his faith. 
Jesus said, I have prayed for you, not that you don't fail, but that your faith doesn't fail. The triad of our faith is so precious to Jesus that he even prayed that it doesn't fail in Peter. How fitting is it that it is Peter who is writing to us about the preciousness of faith and his trials. Maybe that has something to do with why, he, why God told him to uh, strengthen the brethren when he's, when he's converted. 2 Peter 1 and 4. Go there. It says, 2 Peter 1 and 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The third thing that is precious to God are his promises. So much so that there is an entire dispensation in the Old Testament dedicated to that very thing, the dispensation of promise. What is this dispensation of promise? It was the promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He was talking about the promise of the Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, God kept that promise when, to Abraham when the fullness of time was come. He robed himself in the flesh of, man, of the man Jesus and dwelt among us. After which he gave an exceeding great and precious promise in the New Testament. He gave us the promise of the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we identify with the gospel uh, in repentance, Jesus' name, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. We're talking about the promise of salvation. And Acts 2.39 says, For the promise is unto you and to all your children, or to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord your, our God shall call. Let's pull up. Uh, let's pull up Second Peter one and four again, please. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, uh, that by these promises ye might be partakers of the divine nature. We might be partakers of the divine nature. However, we have to avail ourselves of these promises. We must receive them. When God knocks on the doors of our hearts offering us these promises, we must be willing to invite him in and in, in, in accept those promises. Okay? That by the promise of salvation and the Holy Ghost working in our lives, we can share in the divine nature. Okay? We can walk in holiness. We can live in righteousness. We can have power over sin. And we can have a relationship with him. That we can escape the source of the corruption, which the Bible says is lust. Praise God. Now. Again, what makes the promises of God, or yeah, what makes God's promises precious to him? Well, the purpose of his promises is to restore fallen man to a relationship with him. We are the object of his promises. Therefore, they are precious to him. Okay. Now, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3, and, 3 through 4, and I'm going to go down to verse 6 as well. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious... To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Verse 6 says, 
Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believe on him shall not be confounded. Who is the object of these verses? Well, verse 3 says, It is the Lord. He was rejected of men, chosen of God, and precious. In verse 6, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 28 and 16. Isaiah 28, 16, where Peter is quoting from, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. We can see from these verses that there is a foundation being laid, and a specific stone is set in that foundation. That specific stone is the cornerstone or the strongest part of that foundation. It is a living stone. It was chosen of God, and it was tried. And God here is talking in the, fir in the first person. And the Lord God said, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation. So we can see that that cornerstone is God. Now let's flip over to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We see that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation that was laid. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. So if in the Old Testament says that God is the cornerstone and the New Testament says that Jesus is the cornerstone, we can conclude that Jesus is God. And both Peter and Isaiah say that Jesus who is the cornerstone, is precious. I said all that to say that we are not talking about a second person of a trinity. Trinitarianism is not a doctrine that is found in the Bible. Okay? Jesus is God incarnate. All the attributes of God, of a mighty, holy God, are robed in all the frailty of fleshly man, yet perfect and without sin. Okay? Put another way, I'm going to paraphrase what David Bernard says. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh while on earth. One of the attributes of God is his omnipresent, that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. While here on earth, manifest in the flesh, he did not, he did not cease to be omnipresent. But because Jesus was flesh, his physical body was limited to only one place at a time, but his spirit was everywhere because it can't be contained in just one physical body. So it was possible for Jesus to be here on earth and in heaven at the same time. Which is why uh, at Jesus' baptism, God could say of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We could spend hours on just this topic alone. But understand, I'm not talking about multiple persons here. I'm referring to God in the flesh. So, now, it, it should be obvious to everyone why Jesus was precious to God. And time would fail me to list all of those to list all of those reasons, and I don't know of anybody that can exhaust uh, all of those reasons. But let's look at a couple of reasons why Jesus is precious to God. Okay, Jesus came that we might have eternal life and be saved. John three sixteen and seventeen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son in the flesh, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son in the flesh okay, into the world 
to con- not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In the flesh, he could do what the... So we have salvation through Jesus, right? God sent his son. We have salvation through Jesus. But in the flesh, he could do what the law could not do. The law was given to us to reveal sin, to give us a knowledge of sin. But it could not save. It could only condemn us. But let's read what Jesus could do that the law could not do in Romans 8 and 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Now I'm going to do a lot of of reading here over the next few verses. But I think this can be explained very well by reading a modern translation of the Bible from Galatians. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 27. Um, I'm going to read it from the NIV. It's not quite 100% accurately translated, but it serves well to, to get my point across. And hopefully it will start, you will start to see how all of this message and teaching is coming together. It says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to human covenant that is... Uh, been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises, one of the things precious to God, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus. Another one of the things precious to God. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set the covenant previously established by God and thus, I'm sorry, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For the inheritance or salvation, uh, if the inheritance or salvation depended on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions uh, until the seed whom the promise referred has come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had uh, had been given that it could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Excuse me. So that what was promised being given through faith. Okay, that was was promised. Being given through faith in Jesus might, re- might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody. The uh, King James says it's a schoolmaster under the law. Locked up until the faith uh, that was come to be revealed. So the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Justified, just as, just as if I never sinned. Okay. Uh, what does the Bible say? That righteousness was imputed unto Abraham because of faith. Okay. Now, this faith, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or schoolmaster, as King James says. So uh, in Christ Jesus... You are all the children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized, part of the promise, unto Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. If Jesus had not come, we would still be under the law and found guilty and condemned. 
But there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, himself is precious to God. Number five goes hand in hand with number four, the blood of Christ. Verse, or yeah, First Peter 1 and 18. For as much as you know that you were redeemed with corruptible things as silver and, sorry, let me say that again. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold uh, from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, we are not redeemed by silver and gold, right? But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, Jesus came to accomplish uh, what the spirit could not do. And that is to die for sins. More specifically, he shed his blood to redeem us from sin. Hebrews 9.22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. This all started way back uh, in Genesis uh, in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. They tried to cover their nakedness. Uh, by sewing fig leaves together. Nothing they could do would be adequate to cover them. So God had to make them coats of skin to cover them. An animal had to die. Blood had to be shed okay, in order to cover their sins. This established the animal sacrifice uh, that, from that, that from that time forward. But even at that, the animal sacrifices were not enough. It didn't redeem mankind. It only pushed their sins to Calvary. The blood of goats and, and bulls only pushed off their sins for a year. It did not take them away. I would encourage you to do your own Bible study on animal sacrifices and tabernacle worship. It is way too detailed to get involved here. But what the Bible says about it, to my point, is found in Hebrews 10, 1 and 4, or 1 through 4. Hebrews 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which are being offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have known uh, no more the consciousness of sin, the conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take uh, should take away sins. All it did was push it. The the, the high priest would would take the uh, the blood of the, the of the of the sacrifice from the uh, altar of repentance and take it into the uh, holy of holies and sprinkle it sprinkle it onto uh, the ark of the covenant. And they, he did that, and only the high priest could do that. And he only did that once a year. So the, that blood of the goats and the and the bulls and the sacrifices, it didn't take away their sins. It just pushed it off for another year. And it did that year after year after year until until the time of Calvary. But Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins. So when you are baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, the blood is applied to our lives, our sins are washed away and forgiven, and we can walk in the newness of life with him. What his blood does for us makes it precious to him. All right. If uh, we're going to have some music, if somebody wants to come to the music. All these things, faith, the trial of our faith, God's promises, Jesus himself, and the blood of Christ all culminate 
into the last and most precious thing to God. Okay? And it brings us back full circle to my opening scripture in James. Let's bring back James 5 and 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. It's been said that when you see the word therefore in scripture, that you should stop and find out what therefore is therefore. The context of these verses is suffering is the suffering and affliction of the saints. Okay? James is saying that in your suffering, therefore, wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. He gives the analogy of a farmer waiting patiently for his crop, which is patient for, or which is precious to him. Okay? Now watch this. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your, your pure minds by the way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of the apostles and of the Lord, uh, and, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Of his coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. In the last days, there's going to be people that are going to be doubting that if, whether or not Jesus is ever going to come back. Okay? But verse, let's go down to uh, verse 9. Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word. Okay? He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now let's take a look at John 4, verse 35. Jesus is speaking here and he says, Say ye not, there are yet four months and then cometh the harvest? Behold, I say, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The last thing that is precious to God is you. The precious fruit of the earth. And he's waiting patiently for you to come to repentance. Okay? We, are so, we are so precious that Jesus makes a prayer request about it. Matthew 9, chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that ye will send forth laborers unto the harvest, unto his harvest. Jesus saw the multitude and was moved with compassion on them and said, I want you to pray that someone would go to them and tell them, have faith because your faith is what justifies you. And that's precious to me. Though you may be suffering, your faith will be tried and proven, bringing you closer to me. And that's precious to me. Let them know that I came that they may have eternal life. And I shed my blood to redeem them of their sins. And that's precious to me. Tell them of my promises, that they need to repent and be baptized in my name. And I will fill them with my spirit. They will be saved and that's precious to me. Tell them it's been 2,000 years and I am still waiting to return because I am patiently waiting for whosoever will come to me because I am not willing that any of them should go to a devil's hell because they are all precious to me. I'm going to finish with these last scriptures in Mark chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Because we are all, or because we are uh, in the epistles of Peter so much tonight, I want to leave you with this last illustration of how precious we are to God. 
Satan did tempt, Satan did take Peter uh, and sift him as wheat. And he denied the Lord three times, even cursing the third time. And the Bible says that he wept bitterly. Peter failed, but his faith did not. But on Resurrection Sunday, at the rising of the sun, three women went to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body. But what did they find there instead? An empty tomb where only an angel stood. Mark 6, 16. Jesus, uh, the angels were saying, And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Watch this. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. Uh, there you shall see him uh, as he said unto you. Jesus is not here. He's, uh, he is risen like he said he would. But he wants you to not only tell his disciples, but make sure you tell Peter, the one who cursed and denied him, the one whose faith he prayed for, to meet him in Galilee because he is precious to him. And when he did, Jesus asked him three times, Peter, lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, lovest thou me? Lord, I love you. Peter, lovest thou me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Uh, just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus restored him three times. We all have denied Jesus in some way or another and at some point or, or another. Yet we are so precious to him that he calls us by name. Praise God. Six things that are precious to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I wonder if we could all stand. That was a good word. I was blessed by that. I hope you were too.